This Dharma talk was recorded at Prairie Mountain Zen Center in Longmont, Colorado. Uh, good morning, Aposanga. I'd like to introduce our guest speaker from public Arkansas, Toku Rick Foster. Uh, Rick began his Zen practice in Santa Cruz, California. With, uh, Teacher named Catherine Fannis at the Santa Cruz Zen Center. Uh, Catherine Fannis studied with Suzuki Roshi in San Francisco, and she was one of the first teachers that Fred uh, Anderson gave Dharma transmission to. I had the good fortune of knowing Catherine. There was a year about 1986 when Katagiri Roshi went back to San Francisco to lead San Francisco Zen Center for a year. So it was arranged that Catherine Fannis would come to Minneapolis to uh, teach at our center. So I was fortunate to meet her. But I met Rick about eight years ago or so. A, a job in the cycling industry brought him to Boulder Longmont. He was pleasantly surprised to find Perry Mountain Zen Center. He sat with us for a few years. Uh, he started a rocket and I gave him the name Daitoku, meaning great compassion. I gave him that name in part because uh, Rick has shown extreme dedication to his family over many years, showing them great compassion. If you want to uh, begin your talk, Rick, say anything else you want to introduce yourself, would be great. Well, good morning. I want to talk to you today about the uh, first Zen teaching I ever received that really struck home for me. It's something I've taken to heart and carried with me for the past 25 years. It came from my first Zen teacher, Catherine Tanis, and Cliff has told you a little bit about her, and I will tell you a little bit more. Um, there's a lot of Catherine in this talk. Uh, she never went by a, her Buddhist name, which was Soban, and it meant grass writing because she had been an editor and uh, Done a lot of work in nature. We just called her Catherine or occasionally Roshi, so I will continue to do that in this talk. Catherine, as Cliff pointed out, studied Zen at San Francisco Zen Center and its satellite operations at Sokoji Zen Mission, Green Gulf Farms, and Tasahara Zen Center. She received lay ordination from Shinru Suzuki Roshi, priest ordination from Zentatsu Richard Baker, and Dharma transmission from Tenshin Rab Anderson. While she was in San Francisco, she also worked with Dining Katagiri Roshi, the founder of our own lineage here at Prairie Mountain. I use a bunch of her quotes today, or I will when I find the book. I use a bunch of her quotes today. They're from a transcription of her Dharma talks, which I will hold up so maybe you can see, maybe you can't. Aha, it's not going to show up because the uh, background behind me is, is clipping a little bit. But her Dharma talks is called The Truth of This Life, Zen Teachings on Loving the World as It Is. It's edited by Bill and Ellie and Natalie Goldberg. And you may remember the name Natalie Goldberg because she's given a talk to us here at Prairie Mountain. I studied with Catherine from 1995 to 1998 and briefly again in 2005. She was a very kind person, but also very direct. Some would call her blunt. When I came back to the group in 2005, after taking some time off to thoroughly screw my life up, she spotted me in the audience when I asked a question after a Dharma talk. 
She said, you look familiar. And I said, that's because I just came back after seven years. She looked at me and said, really? What took you so long? And everyone in the room laughed, including me. I didn't say it at the time, but I think the reason I came back is that hard as I tried, as much as I screwed my life up, in the end, I just couldn't walk away from the Dharma. So I did come back. My second wife and I have moved 10 times in the 15 years since I last saw Catherine. We've lived in eight different states and two countries, all because I was chasing after jobs. Every, everywhere I went, um, I found places to sit with groups, different groups, and where I live now in South Arkansas, the nearest group is more than two hours away. So I've come back to Prairie Mountain via Zoom. Catherine died in 2012. Her bio on the Santa Cruz Zen Center website says, Catherine's legacy as a Zen teacher is her unusual ability to translate formal monastic training into meaningful understanding of our everyday life. And that's been exactly my experience with her. In addition to learning Zazen and going to services in 1995, my first prolonged contact with Catherine was in her Saturday morning beginners class at Santa Cruz. She called it a mindfulness class. And it was about applying Zen lessons and methodology to our everyday life. Or maybe it was about using our everyday life as a way to understand Zen lessons and methodology, which is how it seemed to end up working out for me. The classes took place in every week in the living room of the residence house that adjoined the Zendo in Santa Cruz. I don't remember much about the class, but the big lesson for me came when she started talking about finding ourselves in patterns of behavior we wanted to change, which was pretty much the story of my entire life at that point. So she said, the practice is always to notice. That was the first time I heard that expression. Even when there's the negative behavior and you don't notice it until after you've done it, that's the time to notice. Don't beat yourself up about it. Don't analyze it. Just notice what's happened. When you practice like this, Catherine said, you'll begin to notice sooner and sooner after the action, and eventually you'll begin to notice before you make the action. And that's when you have the opportunity to change what you do, to change your response. I didn't realize it at the time, but you can literally change parts of your karma through the practice of noticing. I was pretty surprised by all this. I have a very analytical personality and just noticing without commentary or analysis didn't seem like it would affect my behavior. In fact, it didn't seem like it would have any effect at all. It just didn't make sense to me. But I took it home and put it to work. Fortunately, I had lots of opportunities. My first wife and I argued frequently and the arguments sometimes crossed over the kind of things that once said were difficult to unsay. I still remember the first time I noticed I was about to say something before I said it. Aha, here comes that thing that keeps getting me into trouble. So for once in my life, I shut up and said nothing. And it worked. I don't remember what we were arguing about, but I do remember noticing I was about to say something I might regret later, and I made a conscious decision not to say it. And the argument calmed down. It didn't save the marriage, but it taught me a important lesson, which is the practice is to notice. I didn't get to the always part until years later. When Catherine said notice, she was referring to something very specific. She meant being aware of something without comment, without judgment, and without even naming it. I've heard this described many ways, but there was something about the word notice that has always worked for me. In the truth of this life, Catherine says, please use your time to develop an insatiable appetite for inner awareness. 
to become proficient with this mind. Notice what you are willing to pay attention to. We give you all these practices to push you. If they were easy, they wouldn't be worth doing. To me, the idea of pushing yourself, going outside the kinds of things that come, the kinds of things that you're willing to pay attention to are the kinds of things that come up during Zazen. They're familiar and they seem important. Like they say, your whole life comes up on the cushion, but within that, there's a lot of repetition. When I started sitting with the Santa Cruz group in 1995, I quickly discovered I was the worst meditator of all time. I had pain in my legs, I had pain in my back, and my mind would not settle down. I think if I had been born 10 years later, I would have been diagnosed with ADHD as a kid, and that wouldn't have helped with the meditation anyway. We called it monkey mind, but to me, my mind was like a puppy, always bouncing around, exploring new things, constantly demanding attention and getting into mischief. And I had been encouraging this habit of mine for 40 years when I started to practice. So it took a long time to untrain it. When I started sitting, shikantaza was out of the question. Catherine suggested I count my breaths, but I couldn't even count to 10 without losing my place. So I was embarrassed to tell her this, but I secretly started counting to three, one breath, two breaths, three breaths, then back to one. Eventually I was able to increase the count to five. When I could do five consistently, I moved on to 10. That took over a year, but I kept at it. The pain in my legs back eased too. Eventually I could do some shikantaza. When I got distracted, I would go back to counting breaths. I still do this, but even during shikantaza, my mind wouldn't shut up. I kept struggling with the thoughts, trying to push them away, and they kept coming back. And look at me, they would say, isn't this interesting? In meditation discussion, we've all been taught to be aware of the thought, let it arise, let it pass. But I guess I didn't get the memo on that one. One thought led to other thoughts, and pretty soon I was back with my puppy mind chasing butterflies. More than a year after I started, we had a three-day sashim. It was uh, in Santa Cruz. It, it's very cool in the evening even in the summer because the fog comes in from the ocean so when we would show up for the first first sitting of the morning either at 4 30 or 6 o'clock depending on which session it was uh, people would come wearing all kinds of clothes you'd have on two sweaters and gloves and a hat and all kinds of stuff and then as the day wore on to get to be pretty hot it'd be 90 or 95 degrees at the zendo all this stuff would come off one piece at a time so people had these piles of clothing next to them. And um, this was in the middle of the afternoon, so everyone was seated in this crowded zendo with piles of clothing next to them. Then in the evening, you put it back on a piece at a time. But this is the three-day session. By the end of the third day, something shifted, and I began just noticing thoughts. It was like I had finally given myself permission to notice without engaging, and it seemed to make a difference. I was able to let the thoughts pass, and I could return to my breath breathing. So the practice is always to notice. Another way to talk about this is opening the hand of thought. We just finished a six-week class on Thursday nights with Chiko Yun and Yuen on Shokahachi Akamura's book, Living by Vow. It's a really deep book and not an easy one, and I'm grateful to Yuen for bringing it to us so clearly. In the book, Okamura Roshi uses the expression, opening the hand of thought. I like that very much. Okamura got it from his teacher, Kosho Uchiyami Roshi. Here's how Uchiyami put it. He said, 
I use this expression, opening the hand of thought, to explain as graphically as possible the connection between human beings and the process of thinking. Thinking means to be grasping or holding on to something with our brain's conceptual hand. But if we open it, we don't conceive, which what is in our hand falls away. To me, that's just a more poetic way of saying the practice is always to notice. Thinking back to the experience back on the meditation cushion in the hot zendo, I don't know if it was something I was just ready for or if I used the word notice mentally, but it worked for me. I noticed clearly the hand of thought opened up just a little and everything changed for me. The thoughts didn't stop coming. I just finally had a tool where I could deal with them. And of course, noticing applied not just to thoughts, but to awareness of my breath, the practice of being in the present moment. It made a qualitative change in my sitting practice. I still have easy days and hard days. More than 20 years later, I still suspect I always will. But overall, the longer I practice, the easier it gets. There's this sort of cumulative effect of zazen over time. That and there's a certain stubbornness involved too. We don't want to discount that. The most important thing in my practice seems to be just showing up. The practice may be easy or hard, but if I don't show up, do it, there's no practice at all. So I try to show up every day regardless of how I feel. The effects of Zazen over time are both subtle and profound, and they are ongoing. When I started, I didn't notice for months, but little by little, I could see the effects of meditation changing my life. Even so, in our tradition, we sit without expecting anything. We practice with the idea of not gaining anything. Practice itself is enlightenment. Some days I understand this better than others. It's easier when there's a group because the group presence reinforces our determination. We support each other's practice just by being here. We support each other with our presence and with our effort. That's one reason these Zoom meetings are so important to me. I'm so grateful for the opportunity. The cumulative effect is like Suzuki Roshi's metaphor of walking in the fog, which you and is fond of, and he brought it up in our Thursday meeting. When he mentioned it, I remembered it was from Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, so I looked it up, and it fits very closely with my own experience. Suzuki Roshi says, after you have practiced for a while, you will realize it is not possible to make rapid, extraordinary progress. Even though you try very hard, the progress you make is always little by little. It's not like going out in a shower in which you know you're going to get wet. In a fog, you do not know you're getting wet, but as you keep walking, you get wet little by little. Here's what Catherine had to say about that. Each time we return to inhalation and exhalation, we interrupt the conditioned pattern of the mind. Each time we leave our storyline to return to the breath, we strengthen our awareness that breathing is what's actually happening and storytelling is our fictional life. We acknowledge our thoughts and reactions as our storytelling mind rather than what is actually happening. We learn there is no outside. All three of these quotes, Uchiyama, Suzuki Roshi, and Catherine Tanis, are very much how my own path feels to me. But I keep coming back to the practice as always to notice. So we fast forward about 15 years from the Zendo in Santa Cruz, and I started with Prairie Mountain. Prior to that, I'd sat with a Vipassana group in Carson City, Nevada, and Korean Kwanam groups in Seattle, Fayetteville, Arkansas, and in Cincinnati. I was still chasing jobs around the country. There were good groups with good leaders, but I never felt motivated to make a different, make a definite commitment. Coming to Prairie Mountain, it just felt right. After a few months, I asked Jodo Cliff to let me take the precepts as a lay disciple. 
Eventually he agreed, and I had a new class of things to notice. In taking the precepts, we take three refuges, three pure precepts, and the ten grave precepts. Each one is in the form of a vow about how you intend to live your life, which means you take a whole series of vows about things you intend to notice. I was pretty apprehensive about this. The cliff explained that these are not vows in the usual American sense, that you break them and you fail and you're a bad person. The practices we take up to help us live the kind of life we want to have for ourselves and for all beings. As Okamura Rushi says in the introduction to living by a vow, we understand that to live by vow is not to accept a particular fixed doctrine, but as a natural expression of our life force. It's not what we do, it is literally part of who we are. Catherine says, after many years of externalizing my expectations, I came to see that for me, practicing the precepts begins with acknowledging my ordinary mind and its actual manifestation. The busy mind, sometimes clear, sometimes conflicted, is the human condition. And that's what we bring to the practice, both on the cushion and in our lives. And that's how it was for me. Same me, same puppy dog mind, nothing changed, but everything was different. Things didn't change, but I changed. With the precepts in place, I noticed more and applied the results to my life. For instance, the first grave precept is against killing. The way we put it in our tradition is, a disciple of the Buddha abstains from the willful taking of life. Sounds pretty simple, but it gets complicated as you begin to explore it. Here in South Arkansas, there's all kinds of wildlife out there in the, in the forest, and occasionally they try to come into the house. The ants are easy, you just take away their food source and eventually they lose interest and go away. Moths and spiders I can catch in my hand and take them outside and let them go. Wasps are a little harder. For them, you've got to hunt them down with a fruit jar and capture them and take them outside and let them go. Mosquitoes are problematic. Catch one in your hand, you've probably killed it. They don't sit very long in one place so they're hard to catch in a fruit jar. And then there's cockroaches. We all, everyone has cockroaches here in South Arkansas, and I was talking to Jonah Cliff about this one time. He said, Katagiri Roshi told him, I did not tell you to kill a cockroach, and I did not tell you not to kill a cockroach. So what's important is this, is how you use your vows to resolve these situations, what you notice. You try to deal with them in accordance with those vows. It's not a cut and dry thing, it's an ongoing practice. Practice is always to notice, and that becomes a challenge you have to deal with on a daily basis. And over time, it changes your entire life. As Okamura says, part of the definition of a bodhisattva is a person who lives by vow instead of by karma. So the precepts become one more tool you can use to notice and to actualize the things you do in your ordinary life. Here's Catherine again. Zen practice directs us to that quality of mind that simply observes. It's called the not knowing mind, the awake mind, the mind of readiness. At first, we cultivate that mind in the meditation room, and then we bring it to each situation in our lives. So the practice is not just to notice, it's always to notice. That can become a lot harder out in the real world where there's constant input streaming at us from all sides. For one thing, we can't notice everything at once, but as we gain control of our thinking, we can choose what's appropriate for a particular situation. We're driving a car, we need to notice very different things than say when we're cooking. But both those activities offer us the opportunity to be fully and appropriately involved in the present moment. I think that's part 
of what we call skillful means in the Mahayana tradition. Here's an example of the Thursday study group last week. Ewan led us through Okamura Roshi's commentary on the Sundakai, the merging of difference and unity. This is from the book Living by Vow, and Okamura uses cooking as his example. He says, in this case, to let go of thought is to let go of all thought that is not needed for cooking. This means we are completely mindful of what we're doing right now, right here, at this moment. We use our whole mind to concentrate on our day-to-day -day activities. I don't know about you, but I can only reach this state of full engagement occasionally. But we've all been there, and it's a wonderful feeling when it happens. For me, it's hard to maintain. I keep slipping back in my distracted way of thinking. My puppy, mind, puppy dog mind takes over. The only thing to do with that is to notice what's happening and to refocus on the task at hand over and over. I hope it'll get easier with time, but we'll see. So that's all I have to say about that. And uh, we have a little extra time. You've been listening to a Dharma talk from Prairie Mountain Zen Center in Longmont, Colorado. To learn more about us or to make a donation, visit us at prairiemountain.org.